You are listening to audio from Faith Church. If you are in the Seminole, St. Pete area, we would love for you to join us on a Sunday. To learn more, visit us at faithrs.org. If you have your Bible or your Bible app, will you grab that and go with me to Revelation chapter 20. We'll be in Revelation 19 and 20 this morning. And if you don't have a Bible, we have uh, stacks of Bibles on those tables in the back of the room. And we'd love to give you a Bible today. No strings attached. That's just a gift from us to you. And we hope you will start reading the Bible and just see what happens. Just see what happens. If you're willing and able, will you stand with me in honor of the reading of God's Word this morning? We stand because we truly believe this is the Word of God to us. We're standing out of reverence and to show our eagerness, our readiness to hear from him today. So listen carefully to Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 to 15. This is John, who's had this vision that we've been studying for many weeks now. And here's what he sees today. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea, the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. So we have just today and one more week remaining in this series on Revelation. We've been in for a couple of months now. And I hope by now you have realized that really and truthfully in this series, I have not taught you anything new. And perhaps that's been the greatest surprise for you in the book of Revelation, that Revelation does not give us new information. That's not the point of the book. The point of the book, rather, is to revive our imaginations. Eugene Peterson, who's the translator of the Message Bible, he says it really well in his book, Reverse Thunder. Listen to what Peterson says. He says, I do not read the book of Revelation to get additional information about the life of faith in Christ. I've read it all before in the Law and Prophet, Gospel and Epistles. Everything in the Revelation can be found in the previous 65 books of the Bible. The Revelation adds nothing of substance to what we already know. The truth of the Gospel is already complete, revealed in Jesus Christ. There is nothing new to say on the subject, but there is a new way to say it. I read the Revelation not to get more information, but to revive my imagination. By the time we get to the last book of the Bible, we already have a complete revelation of God before us. Everything, everything that has to do with our salvation, with accompanying instructions on how to live a life of faith, it's all here in full. There's no danger that we are inadequately informed. But there is danger that through familiarity and fatigue, we will not pay attention John, the writer of Revelation, takes the familiar words and by arranging them in unexpected rhythms, he wakes us up. 
Revelation is a gift. A work of intense imagination that pulls its readers into a world of sky battles between angels and beasts, lurid punishments and glorious salvation, kaleidoscopic vision and cosmic song. It's a world in which children are instinctively at home and in which adults, by becoming like children, recapture an elemental involvement in the basic conflicts and struggles that permeate our existence. So you see, Revelation is not giving us any new information at all. That's not the point of the book. It's reviving our imaginations. It's drawing us into this world, this symbolic world that's been created over the past several weeks as we've studied this book. And as we're drawn into this world, it changes our perception of reality. It changes the way we see the world in which we live. Now we see how things are playing out truly. Now we see where the world is going ultimately. And that's where we come today. Finally, at long last, we come to the end. The end of the story. The culmination of history as we know it. Now, we've glimpsed this day a few times already in the book of Revelation. But as we've learned, Revelation is not a chronological account. In fact, what we've seen is that it often circles back on itself. Think back to the seven seals. The seven seals show various shades of suffering that believers will experience now in the present age, in the church age, until we get to the last few seals, and there we get a glimpse of the final judgment, a glimpse of the future. And so it seems that we're at the end. But what did Revelation do? It circled back on itself. After the seven seals, we saw the seven trumpets. And the seven trumpets do a very similar thing. They show us God's judgment being poured out on the present world until the last the trumpets, and then we get a glimpse again of that final day, the final judgment. So we've seen this recapitulation, circling back, moving forward, circling back, and it's all been leading up to this. It's all been leading up to the end of chapter 19 and chapter 20, the culmination. Finally, here we are, the return of Christ, the destruction of the dragon and his allies, the final judgment. What will it be like? Let's look. We'll look in three scenes, beginning with the white rider. I'm going to back up to the second half of chapter 19 here, picking up in verse 11. John says, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread, with the, he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The white rider. The white rider is Jesus. The child in the manger one day will return as the warrior 
who will end all wars. Dust off your DVD collection or go home today and rent The Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers. Because in this movie is one of the great battle scenes in all of movie history, the Battle of Helm's Deep. And if you recall the battle, or if you haven't seen it, I'll describe it for you. In the Battle of Helm's Deep, the good guys are surrounded. And it looks really, really bad. And in a last effort, the leaders, Aragorn and Theoden, they ride out to face the enemy. They ride out of their fortress to face the armies of darkness, but they're outnumbered. They're outnumbered until, until they look to the mountain. And there on the mountain they see the white rider. Gandalf, the white. He had come just as he promised he would. Just as he promised. And he leads an army so bright and so wonderful that down the mountain they come and they destroy the armies of darkness. The white rider... Jesus long ago promised that one day he would return. The child born in the manger, he promised that one day he would come back and he would defeat all the armies of darkness. That's what we see here in Revelation 19. Jesus himself said that one day he will return and he also told us we can't know when that will be. See, the return of the king, the return of Jesus, there's a schedule for it, but we don't know the schedule. We should be expecting it, but we don't know exactly when he will come. So you see, this isn't like the Amazon package that's being delivered to your house. We don't have a tracking number on Jesus. We don't know the exact day of his arrival, and therefore Jesus says in Matthew 24, you must be ready now. See, if we know he's coming, but we don't know when, then we must be ready today. Because it could be a million years from now or it could be Monday. We don't know. In Acts chapter 1, the disciples, they saw the crucified, risen Jesus. Jesus promised them that the Holy Spirit would be coming to empower them for the work of ministry. And then the disciples saw with their own eyes Jesus go up into heaven. And then messengers wearing white, angels, they come and they say, Why are you staring into heaven? This same Jesus one day will come. In the same way you saw him leave. That's what we see in Revelation 19. The white rider returning just as he promised he would. Now let's look very carefully at this description. The symbols here are powerful. Let's look at it verse by verse. First, notice the white horse. The horse was a symbol of war. So this is the same Jesus who was born among the animals in Bethlehem who entered Jerusalem on a donkey, which was the symbol of peace, returning on a war horse, the warrior who ends all wars. That the horse is white shows us that his judgment is pure, just. This is the just judge, the righteous warrior who is returning. The one sitting on this horse is called faithful and true, Jesus shows that he is trustworthy, that he is faithful by returning just as he promised that he would. In righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, meaning 
that he sees us and he sees through us. His judgment is pure and it penetrates. No one can hide from this judgment that's coming. No one can escape it. His eyes are like a flame of fire. On his head, many diadems. He has a name written that no one knows but himself. So on the one hand, his name is faithful and true. And on the other hand, he has a name that nobody knows. What's that about? In the ancient world, to know someone's name was to have control over them. To a degree, this is true today. If we're in a crowd gathered together and I shout your name, you turn and look at me, right? So in a way, we could say, by me knowing your name, I have control over you, at least over your attention for that moment. We see this with parents and their children. If your child is in trouble and you want your child's undivided attention, what do you do? You use the child's full name. Cullen Timothy Thornton? He looked right at me. To know someone's name is to have control over them. So what is the point here? This writer, no one has control over him. In context, no one can bribe him. No one can entice him. No one can escape this judgment. No one controls this writer. He does have many names. He's faithful and true. A name that no one knows but himself. The word of God, we'll come to that in a moment. But first, verse 13. The most important part of the entire description. Don't miss it. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. Now this is strange. This is strange indeed. Because this white rider is on his way to the last battle. The battle has not yet begun. And already he's bloody. It's a robe dipped in his own blood. His own blood. This white rider is the lion lamb. The lamb who was slain for our sins. So if you're with the white rider, if you have faith in him, then listen to me, you don't have to fear the final judgment. Because in bold color, he's showing you your sins are covered. Your sins are covered. The robe is dipped in his blood. The blood that deals with our sins. His name is the Word of God. This is the same phrase that John uses in his gospel. You remember the very beginning of the gospel of John? In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. This white rider is the Son of God, the Eternal One. He was there in the very beginning. This white rider is the central message of God Himself, the Word. What does God want you to know about him? Jesus is the answer. He is the word of God. And he is the one who's been there from the very beginning. The armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure. They were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword. I've told you already, this is the warrior coming to end all wars. So we should expect him to have some type of weapon, right? But it's not at all the type of weapon we would expect to see. His weapon is his word. The lion lamb comes wielding the sword word. See, he's so powerful, all he has to do is speak. The same one who in the beginning was powerful enough to speak the earth into existence. 
In the end, he is powerful enough to speak evil into extinction. How about that? That's his power. The word of God who's wielding this weapon of his own, his own word. And then verse 16, on his robe and on his thigh. I always love this, even Jesus has a tattoo. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. Now we have to remember, Revelation was a first century letter, right? In John's day, King of Kings, Lord of Lords, that was a political and a polemical statement. Because that's the precise phrase that people used when Caesar entered the Roman Senate. King of Kings. Lord of Lords. Caesar, you're not who you think you are. No earthly ruler controls the fate of this world. No king or kingdom ultimately can displace God from the throne. When the white rider comes, he will show this for good and all. He will show that he and he alone is the King of kings and Lord of lords. The rider comes. That's scene one. Now scene two, what the the rider is going to bring is the final battle, the never fought battle. But first we have a flashback. The very beginning of chapter 20. Let me read it and then we'll look at it together. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the pit, and shut it and sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. So hang with me on this. We were just in the future. Chapter 19, white riders coming, Jesus is returning. That's future, hasn't happened yet. Now in chapter 20, we're going to have a flashback to the present church age, and we're told that during this present church age, the dragon is somehow bound. So we kind of move from the future coming of Jesus to the present chaining of the dragon of Satan. Now, how do we know that this is a flashback? How do we know that Satan is bound now? Because remember what I told you at the very beginning. Revelation doesn't give us any new information. That's not the point of the book. The point is to revive our imagination. All throughout the New Testament, we are told that Jesus, when he first came, he came to defeat the devil. We see this throughout the Gospels. Jesus is able to resist Satan's temptations in the wilderness. Jesus liberates people from demonic oppression. All of this shows what Jesus came to do at the cross. He came to defeat Satan. Satan has not yet been finally destroyed, but he's already been defeated. And one of the ways the Bible speaks about his defeat is by saying that he's chained. He's bound. So a good example is Matthew chapter 12. Read it later. In Matthew 12, people bring a demon-oppressed man to Jesus. And Jesus immediately heals him. And the Pharisees accuse Jesus of colluding with the prince of demons. Jesus says, guys... You're not very bright. Don't you see that I am the bringer of the kingdom of God? 
Don't you see, I'm not colluding with Satan. I'm here to chain him. I'm here to bind him. It's the exact language that Jesus himself uses. So what do we see here in Revelation 20? We see the same thing that Jesus talks about in Matthew 12. The dragon has been seized. He's been bound for a thousand years. The number a thousand is symbolic, like all the other numbers that we've seen in Revelation so far. This one is just amplifying the idea of completeness. Ten times ten times ten. Amplifying completeness. Throughout the complete entire church age, the dragon is bound. Now, how can that be? We've seen over and over in Revelation the activity of the dragon through his worldly allies, right? Idolatrous political powers, the ungodly world's web of influences. I mean, the dragon has been active, so how can he be bound? Look carefully. It doesn't say he's bound, period. It doesn't say he's powerless, period. It says he's bound in a very specific way. He's bound so that he might not deceive the nations any longer. In other words, the gospel will advance to the nations. What did Jesus say to Peter? I will build my church. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The dragon is bound in such a way that the gospel will indeed go forward. It will advance with great power. Paul says that the gospel is not bound, but the dragon is. So you see, that unbelieving friend in your life, that unbelieving friend in your family, that situation that you're facing that just seems so dark, approach that situation with this knowledge in mind. Approach that unbelieving friend with this knowledge in mind, the gospel will advance. The dragon is bound. He is powerless to prevent God's good plan from coming true. So there's the flashback. Now, right after that, we have the description of the final battle. John is reminding us the dragon's bound, but there will come a day at the end of the church age before the end comes when the dragon will be unchained. You see that here? After that, he must be released for a little while. Why is he released? If God already has the dragon bound, why unchain the dude? I mean, what's going on? Listen to me. Here's what's happening. The prisoner is being moved. That's all it is. The prisoner is being moved. The criminal is being taken to his final place of imprisonment. Watch what happens with the last battle. Now we're moving back to the future. Back to the future, you with me? White Rider comes, dragon unbound. What happens? Probably going to be a heck of a battle, right? Let's read it. When the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog. This is an Old Testament reference from the book of Ezekiel. Here's the goal, to gather them for battle. Dragon unbound, final battle, here it is. Their number is like the sand of the sea, and they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil, who had deceived them, was thrown into the lake of fire, the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast 
and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. The dragon is let go expressly to be put down. See, it's kind of anticlimactic, isn't it? Like, this is the scene when Thanos and his armies show up, but this time the Avengers don't even have to assemble. This is the Battle of Helm's Deep, but this time Aragorn and Thedon, they, they don't have to ride out to face the enemy because the White Rider comes. And with the sword of his word, he speaks. That's all he has to do. The one who is present and powerful in the beginning to speak creation into existence. He's here in the end and he speaks evil into extinction. Gone. And symbolically, it's described as fire coming down and consuming the armies of darkness. And the dragon himself is thrown into the lake of fire. We find the other members of the unholy trinity there. The first beast, the second beast is here referred to as a false prophet. The unholy trinity. They're all in the lake of fire together. And then comes the final judgment. This is where you and I enter the picture. So this final battle, the never fought battle, it brings now this scene where we have the book of books. Maybe no scene in the Bible demands our attention in the way that this one does. Nothing is more urgent. So listen carefully. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away. No place was found for them. And I saw the dead great and small, standing before the throne. And books were opened. And then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire, this is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Final judgment. This is the day that lies ahead for all of us. What's happening here? It begins with a throne. Way back in chapter 4, we saw the throne, John saw it and we with him, the heavenly throne. Now here in Revelation 20, again we see the throne, but now the throne has come. It's come to earth. God Almighty, the righteous and holy God has come to earth. His reign has come. And so how does the earth respond? The earth and the sky, they fled away, they vanish, they disappear. What's that about? This earth, so polluted by sin, so corrupted by evil, it must be purged, purified. Or to use the language of the next chapter, we'll see this next week, this earth passes away, it's gone. To be replaced by something new. And as the earth passes away, look, the dead are raised 
the dead, great and small, standing before the throne of God. Each and every one of us, great and small. It doesn't matter how much money you have. You can't buy your way out of this judgment. It doesn't matter how small or insignificant you think you are. You will not be forgotten on this day. The dead, great and small, stand before the throne. And then look, books are opened. Books, plural, not one, multiple books. What's that about? It seems that each and every one of us has a biography. Story of our lives. All the details. The good, the bad, the ugly. All of our attitudes and actions, our words and our works, the secrets we don't want anyone to know. We have a book. A story of our life. And on this day, before this throne, my book will be opened. And so will yours. The dead are raised. The books are opened. And then notice this. There's this mention of the lake of fire. The second death. The first death is physical death. The second death in the Bible refers to spiritual death, separation from the loving and life-giving God himself. The lake of fire is spiritual separation. It's the same idea we sometimes refer to this as hell, which also is a biblical term. But understand that when the Bible describes hell, it uses images, just like Revelation does. The most common images are darkness and fire, but both of these are making the point of spiritual separation, isolation. Hell, the lake of fire, this is the place for those who have rejected God. It is the rejection of God on a trajectory into eternity. God says, fine, reject me now. You don't want me. You don't want the good and the life that I provide then you will remain on that trajectory for all eternity. Spiritual separation from the loving and life-giving God himself. The lake of fire is the final place, the final place of imprisonment for the dragon, his allies, but also, verse 15, if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So the book of life is what spares us from the lake of fire. Book of life is the answer. So the question should be, how in the world do I get my name in the book of life? I want it there. I need it there. How do I do it? Earlier in Revelation, the book of life is called, by its fuller name, the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. You see, this is the Lamb's book. To have your name in this book, you must be with the Lamb. You must believe in Him. In faith and faithfulness, follow Him. And if your name is in this book, you've got to see how this passage is flowing and how it's working together. If your name is in this book, the book of life, then that trumps... 
whatever is written in your biography. See, one day, that biography of yours and mine, it's going to be there and it's going to be open before the throne. All that we have done, all that we have left undone. But if your name is in the book of life, the life of the Lamb who was slain, that book covers it all. Whatever is on those pages in your biography, whatever's in the footnotes, and you're just hoping people don't read footnotes, whatever's in there, if your name is in the book of life, it covers it. So you have no need to fear this day. No need to fear at all. For you, it will be a day of rejoicing, a day of being welcomed into the new creation. So friends, listen to me. We've learned a lot in Revelation. Nothing new. Nothing that the rest of the Bible doesn't teach us. But I hope it's revived your imagination. And I hope maybe for the first time today you're realizing it's not about what we do. It's not about trying to earn our way into God's kingdom. It's all about that book. Book of Life, the Lamb who was slain. If you are with the Lamb, if you believe in Him, your biography, your sins, it's all covered. Revelation 20, this is the end. Final battle, final judgment, the end. And it's also the beginning. The beginning of the new creation. But that's next week. Don't miss it. Let's pray. Our good and gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. My prayer this morning is that you are working in our hearts right now and that if there is someone in this room, someone watching, listening online, who's been living their life trying to earn their way into your kingdom, trying to earn their way into your presence, that today this imagery from Revelation will help them see they've been doing it all wrong. Because whatever is written in our biographies, our greatest deeds, the money we've earned, the relationships we've built, all of these things, none of them, none of them will earn a place in your kingdom, God. It's also true that all of our failures, all the things written in our biography that we don't want anyone else to know about, None of those things can keep us from your kingdom because of Jesus, because of the lion lamb, the one who conquered by being slain, the one who laid down his life, taking the punishment for our sins. It is faith and faith alone that secures for us the place with you, God, for all eternity. So I pray this morning 
that you, God, would give the gift of faith. That right now, people hearing this message will believe. They will believe in you, Lord Jesus. You will transform them now and transform their future. Because this final day, the end is coming. We know not when. We know not when. So we must be ready now. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus.